right, let's have a prayer as we get started tonight. Lord, I didn't want that to end, Father. That was awesome. Lord, we're here tonight to remember and to celebrate the victory that Jesus earned for us on the cross. Because of that, God, we can't ever stop celebrating and praising your name. Lord, as we look at some scripture and we talk a little bit about what Jesus did for us that night, God, I pray that you will use your word to speak to our hearts, to draw us ever closer to our crucified and risen Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The time was somewhere between 9 a.m. and noon. The location was a hillside less than half a mile outside of the city of Jerusalem. The occasion was the public execution by crucifixion of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. The Bible tells us that there was a crowd that had gathered around the cross on which Jesus was being crucified. Different groups of people were there that day for different reasons. Some were there to mourn. How touching is it that Jesus, his own mother, Mary, stood by her son's side 30-some years later after that Christmas story that we celebrate every year, looking at her son on the cross wondering, is this, how, is this how it ends? Others were there that day just to do their job, such as the Roman soldiers. They woke up that morning, they went to work, they were given the task of carrying out a crucifixion. They had no doubt done it before, they would no doubt have to do it again. It was their duty. The Bible tells us that there were two other criminals also hanging on crosses right beside Jesus. Another group was there just because they happened to be going that way. The Bible calls them bystanders or passers-by, which makes a lot of sense because we know from history that crucifixions took place along public highways. It was Rome's way of telling everybody, this is what happens when you make the decision to break our laws. But there was a final group that was beside the cross on that day. The gospel writer Matthew calls them the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. They were the ones who had rigged this whole thing. They had been up all night long. They had to find Jesus. They had him arrested. And then they orchestrated a trial, complete with false witnesses and all. And then they had to go before the Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate, and convince him to approve this crucifixion. But at the end of the day... In their minds, they had succeeded. Because they, like everyone else around that cross, stood there looking at this bloody and beaten man hanging there, waiting to die. In the past 24 hours, Jesus had suffered a myriad of physical abuses, and no doubt what they saw told the tale of what had happened to him. The Bible says he was blindfolded and beaten, not just by the Jewish leaders, but also by Roman soldiers. His face would have had facial fractures and open lacerations and would have been bruised and possibly even his eyes would have been swelling shut. Later on, he was flogged. And flogging was one of the most heinous forms of first century punishment. 
When a person was flogged, they were whipped with a whip that was made of long leather straps, about 24 inches long, with pieces of metal and bone attached to the ends of those straps. And the, and the perpetrator of the torture would stand behind the victim and would lash out and let those sharp objects whip around their body, sink into their flesh, and they would yank back with all of their strength 39 times, tearing away muscle and tissue and skin. In fact, other historical documents tell us that it wasn't uncommon for a person to be flogged to have their organs and their bones exposed. Jesus would have also probably have been naked. All of his clothing would have been removed to further humiliate him in his suffering. And then there was the crucifixion itself. He was hanging from a cross, nails piercing his hands, a nail piercing his feet, holding him to the cross. His weight hanging there would have caused dislocation, first of his shoulders, then of his elbows, then of his hands. His body was literally pulled apart, which brings a whole new level of meaning to the communion that we're going to celebrate in a little bit, looking back at the night that Jesus said, this is my body broken apart for you. There would have been immense amount of pressure on his rib cage. He would have been in a constant state of inhalation. His lungs would have been under stress. They wouldn't have been able to deliver oxygen to the body to survive. His heart would have been racing to try to remove carbon dioxide from the blood, and it wouldn't have been able to keep up so that eventually, after this vicious cycle takes place over and over and over again, of trying to catch his breath and not being able to, his lungs would have filled with fluid. He would have been hyperventilating, dehydrating, and suffering from possibly even heart failure. And this is what the crowd around the cross saw when they stood there that day. And this evening, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, looking at one particular group that was there. As they're looking at this man, this naked, this bloody, this suffering, this seemingly defeated Jesus hanging on the cross... Matthew tells us in chapter 27, and if you have your Bibles, you can make your way there, pull out your phone, get on our guest Wi-Fi and use that, or just look up on the screen. Matthew tells us that this group of religious leaders that had rigged this whole thing and manipulated their way to having Jesus crucified step forth and begin to say some things to Jesus. In Matthew 27, verse 41, he writes, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Look at what they said. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusts God? Okay. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're looking at this person on the cross, suffering and dying, and they're saying, really? Really? This is God. All of you people who are standing around here, you disciples who are here at the cross who followed him, you really think that this is God? Okay, okay. He said that he came to save people. He taught it. You heard it. What kind of savior can't even save himself? And then they brought up that he constantly talked about this kingdom of his. 
They said, but kings, don't they sit on thrones? They don't hang on crosses. Oh, and he claimed to be the son of God. Oh, yeah, okay, so if he's God's son, wouldn't that make God his father? You people have kids. What kind of father could let his son suffer like this and do nothing? All boiled down, their argument was, if Jesus did not save himself from the cross, it could only be because he could not save himself. And, he, and if he could not save himself, then there's no way that he could be God. Because they said, unless you save yourself, how can you save others? What kind of savior can't even save himself? And unless you overcome the cross, how can you be a king? Because kings conquer. They aren't conquered. And how can God be your father unless he rescues you? Because what kind of father would let this happen to his son? Now I want you to do something tonight. Thank you for coming to Good Friday service. My guess is because you came to Good Friday service, you probably have at least a good guess about how this service or how this event turns out. If you come back on Sunday morning, you'll find out how it turns out. But my guess is you know that the cross isn't the end of this story. But I want you to do something for me tonight. I want you to pretend like you were there that day and all that you knew about this story was what had happened up to this point. Let's say you live in and around Jerusalem and, and, and you've heard about this teacher, Jesus, and you heard he does miracles and you knew he had a bunch of followers, but he also said all this controversial stuff that made the religious leaders mad at him enough that they want to have him killed. And you're standing there that day. Now, if I was there, and I think if you were there, there would be probably one thing that you would be thinking. Okay, this is it. We're going to find out. Is he God or not? right? You're Jewish, so you know the Old Testament a little bit. You remember Elijah? He was this prophet who kind of went head to head with these Baal prophets, these false god prophets, and all of a sudden, you know, they're having this contest, and, and God calls down fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice to prove that he was really God. I'd be looking at the sky thinking, all right, when's it I, I got to stand back because the fire is going to come down. Or, or maybe... You know the story of Elisha, different prophet, really similar name. But one day, these kids are mocking him, just being snotty, bratty teenagers. They're mocking him for being bald, which isn't nice. And it irritated God to the point that he actually sent bears out of the woods and mauled those teenagers. Which sounds pretty unfair to us, but it also shows just how much God cares about protecting a man of God. And so you're standing there that day thinking, if there was ever a time for God to prove who he is, if there was ever a time for righteous retribution, if we could ever expect it, and not only expect it, but it would be justified, it is now. The fire has to be coming from heaven. I'm going to step back and get my marshmallows. Here we go. Which makes what happens next even more surprising. Because in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, Matthew writes this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. For three hours, nothing happened. God went dark. 
When intervention seemed inevitable, God seemed invisible. When intervention seemed like it had to be coming, God seemed like he was nowhere to be seen. Which when you take God's apparent invisibility and you combine it with the accusations that these religious leaders were making towards Jesus, we have to ask, did they have a point? Maybe they weren't wrong. In fact, there's a question that I think that this leads us to ask when we really think about it, and it's this. Could Jesus have saved himself? Could Jesus have come down from that cross? Could Jesus have saved himself? And if he could, why didn't he? And so that's the question I want you to consider with me tonight. And to do this, I want to ask you, maybe if you've had a couple different experiences, that'll kind of help to give us the perspective on this. So, so maybe this has happened to you. I like to go on vacation. And, and maybe if you've ever been on vacation, uh, you've had this experience. So you're on vacation, and for me, it's at the beach, and you're having an amazing week. The weather is good. Everybody's getting along. You're relaxing. And somewhere... Kind of for me, towards the end of the week, I'm sitting in a chair looking at the ocean, and I have this thought in my head. I really don't want to go back to reality. Like, what? And I start to play it out. Like, what would happen if I just stayed here? How long could we last? Or maybe this is you. Maybe you hate the beach. But there's been that night, you know, you're into that new show on Netflix or on Hulu, and you're like, you're binge watching. You're like three or four episodes in, and you're completely hooked. And you know, like, this is you, because you've got a long weekend this weekend. And you're like, I'm getting caught up. That is me tonight. I don't have to get up in the morning. And, 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 but let's say it's a weeknight, and you've got class or work the next day. And you're like, oh, I really should go to bed. But then you start to do the math. You're like, 42 minutes per episode times 12. I could finish this at 6.30 in the morning if I just stay up all night long. You've had that thought. Or if you're a parent, I guarantee you've had this thought. You're at home. You've been home with the kids all day long. They're fighting. They're not listening. They're not getting along. And you look over on the countertop, and there it is, the iPad. And you think to yourself, you don't have to admit it out loud. I know you thought it. If I just give them the iPad, they will play it the rest of the day. But ultimately, in each of these scenarios, you pack up the car and come home for vacation, or you turn off the TV and you go to bed, or you resist the urge to give the kids the iPad, because this is the reality that you know in your life. What is a possibility is not always a priority. What's a possibility is not always the best thing for you. What you could do is not what always you should do. And the same thing was true for Jesus. Saving himself was a possibility, but it was not his priority. He had something more important to do. How, how do we know that he could have saved himself? Well, he tells us the night before when he was arrested. One chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew, again, one of Jesus' disciples, he would have been there to watch it happen. He said, these, these chief priests, they're coming to arrest Jesus, and they show up with guards. They're like all muscled up, ready to go. 
And one of Jesus' disciples is standing there and he's waiting for him. He's like, surely this is it. Surely this is the moment that Jesus is going to stop them. He's going to fight. And he's waiting for it. And he's waiting for it. And he realizes that Jesus isn't doing anything. He's letting them arrest him. And so John tells us that it was Peter who said, that's it. If you're not going to save yourself, Jesus, I'll save you. And he pulls out his sword and he tries to cut off someone's head. But he misses because he's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. He takes off an ear. And Jesus, I mean, this is like just so typical Jesus. He heals the guy right there. He's like, geez, a whiz, Peter. I mean, practice at least. Puts the ear back on. And then he says this. He says this. Do you not think, this is Matthew chapter 6, 26, verse 53. Do you not think I cannot call down, on, call on my father and he will once put at my disposal, more than 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels. Jesus is saying, I don't need some fisherman flailing about with a fillet knife. I have 72,000 angels who will come and put a stop to this right now. But he didn't call on them because escaping arrest was a possibility, but it wasn't his priority. And escaping the cross was a possibility, but it wasn't his priority. Which leads us to ask, what was his priority then? Again, we can look to Jesus' words, this time in John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus is having this conversation with some of his disciples, actually Philip and Andrew, and he's talking about how he was going to die. This is less than a week before this story of him dying on the cross. And he's talking about how he feels about it. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says this. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's saying, I can pray to my father and ask him to save me. He said, that's a possibility. I could pray this prayer and say, God, I know what's before me, but I don't want to do it. Please save me. But he said, no, no. Because it was for this very reason I came to this hour. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. And the word hour there in the original language, it has like this connotation of a, like a fateful destiny. Or like a final destiny. Have you ever wondered like why you're put here on earth? Like what your purpose in life was? Think about what Jesus' answer to that question could have been. He was an amazing teacher. I mean, when he taught, really, really simple peasant people were able to understand spiritual truths and apply it to their lives in a way that would change the world. He, he was, oh, my goodness, like p- women, the Bible tells us women who were caught up in habitual affairs would sit down and have one conversation with him, and they would leave that life forever. The guy who's writing this gospel, Matthew, he was a tax collector. He, he stole money off of people, and then he meets Jesus, and he leaves this life of robbery, and next thing you know, he's writing portions of the Bible. Jesus healed people. He fed the hungry. He had this long list of endless possibilities that he could have done with his life. He had this long list of endless possibilities of what his purpose in life could have been. And he says, no, I didn't come ultimately to teach. I didn't come ultimately to heal. I didn't come ultimately to do miracles. He said, I came with one 
priority and one priority only, and it was to die. It was for this hour that I came. I I love how author and pastor John Stott puts it. We're going to put this quote on the screen for you. He, He says this, Despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, and his works of compassion and power, none of these was central to his mission. What dominated his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. And so let's go back to that scene on the cross. The religious leaders challenged Jesus, saying, if you really are the Son of God, prove it. They mocked him and dared him to give a full demonstration of what he had the power to do. But Jesus' reply to them was not in what he chose to do, but in what he chose not to do. Through his lack of action, he said to them, I could save myself, but I will not. Because if I save myself, it will prevent me from doing what I came to this hour to do. What they didn't realize, but what we can look back on Scripture and realize is that if Jesus did everything that he could do, he would not have been able to do what only he could do. If he did everything he could do, he would not have been able to do what only he could do, and that was give his life. You know, they said to him, unless you save yourself, you can't be a savior. But as he hung on that cross... Jesus was saving someone. He was saving me, and he was saving you. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. He came for this hour. He came with this priority. He came with this purpose. He came into the world to save not himself, but sinners, of whom I am the worst, and you are the worst, and I am the worst. He was a savior. He just wasn't saving who they dared him to save. He was saving who he needed to save. They said to him, you can't be a king unless you overcome the cross. But what they didn't realize is as he hung on that cross, he was not being overcome but he was overcoming something else. My sin and your sin. You remember that guy who was cutting off people's ears? Peter? He stuck it out. He wanted to quit, but he didn't. And he later came to realize this. He writes it down in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, look, look, now I realize when I was standing there, when they hurled insults at him, He did not retaliate. You know what? He's thinking, I couldn't figure out why at the time. Why wouldn't he just show them how powerful he was? But he said, now I realize why. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. If he had retaliated and overcome them, he would not have overcome our sins. But he bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You know, they said to him, unless God rescues you, 
He can't really be your father. But what they didn't realize is that God was rescuing someone as Jesus hung on the cross. He was rescuing you, and he was rescuing me. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14 says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Australian theologian Leon Morris puts it like this. I think he just says this so well. He writes, They said they would have believed he was the Son of God had he come down from the cross. But we're here tonight on Good Friday, and we believe that he was the Son of God because he stayed up on the cross. You see, Jesus wasn't too weak to come down. He was too strong. And it wasn't that he couldn't save himself. It was that he wouldn't allow saving himself to be more important than saving us. And on that day when God seemed invisible, we're able to now look back and see that even though it seemed like he was nowhere to be seen, he was actually giving us the most visible symbol of his intervention and love that the world has ever seen. You know, when I think about this, I think about back in January of this year, my family and I, we were in, in the Mars, Pennsylvania area, and, and we were driving on Route 228. And, and it was like this January winter night in western PA that makes us all fantasize about moving to Florida. It was, I'm like driving along, it's, there's no street lights, there's no traffic lights. It was like this thick kind of winter dark, and of course, it's precipitating. And I, it wasn't rain. It, wa- it wasn't snow. It was some other form that we only get here in Western PA. And, and so we're driving along, and, and it's silent, and I'm focusing on the road. And the only thing I can hear is the sound of my windshield wipers going back and forth. And, and if, you know, if you've ever driven in Western PA on a cold January night when it's raining or snowing or somethinging, you know that like, you get these moments of visibility in between the passes of the windshield wipers. Because we will all admit that there's moments, we're driving along half the time blind, and we're just hoping. But there's a pass of the windshield wiper, and you can see the lines in front of you, and then it gets blurry again, and there's a pass, and you can see the car in front of you. So, so we're driving along, and I'm focused on the road. In between the passes, far in the distance, I see this bright object, and then it disappears with the wintry mix, and then the wipers go again, and I can see it, and then it disappears. And as we go along, I knew what it was because I've been on that road a bunch of times. Up on a hill along 228 sits one of our Christian Missionary Alliance churches. And on the highest roof of their building, they have a well-lit cross that's visible from all directions. And even on the most cold, dark, blurry of Western PA winter nights, that cross can be seen as a visible symbol of victory and hope. On the day that Jesus died, God entered our cold and blurry and dark world. And he gave us the most visible symbol of his love and power and intervention that he could possibly have given. The cross. And just like any great symbol, the cross isn't important because of the object that it is. It's important 
because of what it represents. Because when we look at the cross, we see that God does intervene and he can transform things. When we look at the cross, we see would not transformed from could not. We see defeat transformed into victory. When we look at the cross, we see death transformed into life. When we look at the cross, we see apparent invisibility transformed to eternal visibility. We see our condemnation transformed to forgiveness. We see a tragic ending transformed to an epic triumph. We see the mockery of murderers transformed into a prophetic pronouncement because when we look at the cross, we see the accusation that Jesus could not save himself transformed from an accusation of weakness to an expression of love and God's intervention. That's what we're here tonight to remember. And so in a minute, we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate another symbol that Jesus gave us to remember what he did for us. But before we do that, I, I want to ask you a question. Where does this land with you tonight? Where does this land with you? Maybe you walked in here tonight and you're like, man, Friday night service is great because I've been so busy like, life is crazy. It's spring. Work is picked up. You've got so much going on. You know, when my wife and I got engaged, like, 11 or 12 years ago, Facebook was just becoming popular. And so, like, after we told all our friends and family, the next thing that I had to do was get a Facebook account because my wife wanted to be engaged to a real person. And apparently, you can't be a real person until you have a Facebook account. So, so we get this Facebook account. So, so she's kind of like the Facebook person in our house. And, and for the whole time we've been together, she's posted pictures and different things on Facebook. Well, at some point, Facebook came up with this timeline feature. So every once in a while, my wife will come up to me and she will bring some picture of something that happened. And, and, and the timeline on Facebook has shown it to her. Maybe something our kids did, some special night we had or whatever. And she'll say, seven years ago, Easton did this. You know what, tonight as we look at the cross, maybe you need to check your timeline with God. And you need to stop long enough to remember who it is that we worship and what it is that he did for you. I mean, you think about it, what kind of love does it take to be able to come down from a Roman cross and put the suffering to an end right now and yet choose not to? And the answer to that question is, it's God's love for you and for me. Or, or maybe you're here tonight and you feel like God just seems invisible. You feel like there's a situation in your life, God's intervention should be inevitable, but he's nowhere to be seen. You walked in here tonight and you're thinking, God, where are you? Do you even care? You know, I want to share two things with you. If that's you tonight, I'm so glad you're here. The, the first thing is this. You know, sometimes when it seems like God's invisible, it's because we're looking for what we want him to do for us rather than what he wants to do in us or through us. Do you remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 12 when he was saying, he said, no. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me. He says, no. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. He, in other words, he was saying, look, look, my eyes could very well be on what I want God to do for me but he said, no, my eyes 
my eyes are going to be on what he wants to do through me. And my question to you tonight is, in the situation in your life, where are your eyes pointed? And here's the other thing. I just want to share with you. You know, it can in life sometimes feel like God is invisible. And that's why we need to remember the cross. Because when we say, God, where are you? Jesus on the cross said, here I am. Here I am for you. And when we say, God, do you care about me? Jesus on the cross put his arms out wide and said, this is how much I care about you. So if that's you tonight and you feel like, does God care? Is he even there? Yes. Look to the cross because if Jesus would not abandon you in your sin, but would go to the extent of giving his life for you on the cross, he won't abandon you now. Finally, you might be here tonight and you feel like, hey, my life is kind of like that winter road. It's dark, it's blurry, it's cold. I feel like, I just feel like there's this emptiness, like this disconnection. If God brought you here tonight, this might be the whole reason why you're here. The Bible tells us that the sin in our lives can create this feeling of separation between us and God. It's like a disconnection that no matter how much we try or how much we do, we just can't bridge that gap which is why Jesus came to the world. Remember what we read back in 1 Timothy? Paul wrote, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to remove the sin in our lives that separates us from God. I've heard this statement a couple times in the past few weeks. People say, you know, when, when I come to church, I just feel good, like I feel like I'm in the right place. If that's you, if you say, you know, I've been coming to this church and I feel like, I just feel like it's good for me. I don't know why. I, I want to tell you that's God drawing you to himself. And God draws us to him, but there is still a chasm between us and him, and it's called our sin. And on the cross, Jesus bridged that chasm once and for all. He gave his life for you. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. And tonight he's saying to you, will you give your life to me? Will you allow me to forgive your sin? Will you allow me to connect you with God? Notice, notice I didn't say, you know, if you just go to church or, you know, if you just keep doing good things or if you just know the story. Jesus wants you to give your life to him. Let's close in a word of prayer. And as we do, I just want to encourage you. Bow your heads and close your eyes. If tonight you feel like God's brought you here, maybe you weren't even planning to come. Someone just invited you. Maybe you were bored and you're like, oh, I'll go to church. Whatever reason that you're here, you're not here by accident. Jesus died for you so that you could have a relationship with him. I just challenge you tonight as we close in prayer. Give your life to him. Even as I pray, I encourage you to pray and give your life to him tonight. God, we come before you and it feels like it's an impossible task sometimes to talk about the magnitude of what you did for us on the cross. It's the central moment in all of history. When Jesus died on that cross, everything changed. God, as we move now into the act that you gave us to remember your sacrificial love for us, I pray that you will 
speak to our hearts. God, help us to sense and feel your love in our lives and give you the praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name I pray.